0: Good to see you this morning. Uh, you never know. You know, if I was on the East Coast where I used to live uh, on a day like this, nobody would show up for church because uh, you guys are much more hearty in regard to your approach toward winter. You're going to like, ah, it's not a big deal. you know. So we had a good crowd for a service and looked like a good crowd to service as well. I know that you will probably took a little bit longer this morning to get your driveways kind of cleaned out. Even if you cleaned them out yesterday, probably drifted back over a little bit. So we gave it an extra five minutes today. That's why we started a little bit later than normal. Bob, thank you so much, brother, for your yesterday. Last night, I was getting ready to go outside and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, go out and shovel off my driveway. And uh, my, and I said to my wife, I already have my coat on, you know, and I had not put my gloves on and stuff. And I look out the door, and here's one of my friends out, out with his tractor to halt doing my driveway. And I'm going like, yes! <laughs> that was a blessing. So you blessed me last night, okay? Thank you. He's always back this morning. I don't wait back there. Usually you're over here. I don't know what the deal is, you know. Okay. Uh, we're, we're in the second week of a series called Greater. Uh, greater, when you think of the term greater, sometimes we get confused because if we look at it from the world's terms, uh, we're thinking about, you know, the whole idea of like, well, you know, if God wants me to do greater things, you know. And the reality is, is that as I was coming up here this morning, this is what I do almost every week before I come up here as I'm praying, as I'm singing, but also I'll pray a little bit too. Uh, before I come up and I'm going like you know God less of me and more of you that's my prayer every week less of me and more of you God I mean I'm up here so that people can say oh Bill that was a great sermon whatever you can say that if you want to I do like encouragement you know if it's a bad sermon just don't say anything Uh, but uh, but the reality is it's not about me it's about what God can do and as we talk about greater it's not about this whole you see the world does things like uh, tomorrow night is the national championship football game right some of you don't care, you know, you, know, you know. I'm rooting for Clemson, by the way, not because I'm a Clemson fan, but simply because I like somebody new to win every once in a while. And so um, when I was listening to some of the interviews of some of the guys, you know, they're playing, you know, some of the quarterback for Clemson's uh, Heisman, uh, candidate, the guy for running back for uh, Alabama was uh, the Heisman Trophy winner, you know, and the whole deal, and they're talking about stuff, and, you know, and, and the thing is they were talking about, you know, how much they, they did in life to, to get where they are and how they'd achieved that, and the reality is is so often that the difference between that and, and where we are as Christians is this. In, in the world, people uh, work and try to do things, and they hope that someday if they do enough that they can do something what they would call greater or better, but, they never, but, but it's all in their own power. The difference for us is in faith and what we're talking about in the series is this. We know that no matter what we do, that God's got to intervene for God to do what he wants to do in our lives that's greater. It's not about us. It's about him. And that's what we talked about. Last week in the first message, if you didn't, weren't here, you can go to our podcast and listen to that as well. It was out of 1 Kings 19, verses 19 through 21, when we were introduced to a guy named Elisha. Elisha. There was a guy named Elijah that's kind of the rock star of prophets in the Bible, but Elisha was the guy that came after him. And, and we were introduced last week because Elisha was introduced for the first time. He was the guy that in a real sense that, uh, that, that Elijah placed his mantle, placed his cloak upon to say, you're going to be the guy that's going to follow me. And so we saw that in chapter 19. And then we go through several chapters at the end of 1 Kings that really, Elisha doesn't really play much of a role. It's all about Elijah and other prophets as well. And then we get to Second Kings chapter three before we really, or chapter two before we really see Elijah, Elisha show up again. And it's really, if you want to really see, read some really great, cool scripture, uh, really cool scripture, go to First Kings or Second Kings chapter one and two because that's where Elijah, Elijah is taken up to heaven. He doesn't even die. God just takes him up in a chariot of fire. He's one of two people in scripture that we know of that didn't, didn't die. The other was Enoch. Enoch was the father of Methuselah in the Old Testament. It says that he was no more. Didn't say he died. It says he was no more. I don't know what that means. But uh, it, obviously there was nothing to talk about his death. But the thing is Elijah is taken off. And after we see that what happens is um, we come to the chapter 3 of 2 of, of, uh, Kings and we see this guy, Elisha, comes into, this, into the scene. Now, let, me, let me kind of set it up for you this morning, 2 Kings chapter 3. What had happened up to this point in time is that the nation of Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And, and before that, and during that time, there was a king that we talked a little bit about last week that was the, the nemesis, in the sense, of Elijah. His name was Ahab, and he had a wife named Jezebel, yeah, that's a really famous name, uh, probably, not, you probably don't name your kids Jezebel, it has a lot of implications, uh, in, you know, if you do, uh, and, and the reality was, is that was who it was, now Ahab had died, Jezebel had died, and now their son uh, had come along as the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and, and Jehoshaphat, a really cool name that you probably will not name your kids either, uh, Jehoshaphat was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, And so what had happened is there was this other group of people called the Moabites. And the Moabites were people who were ruled over by the Israelites. And they had been under the thumb of Ahab and all this stuff. And obviously the Moabites were like huge, I mean big time shepherds. They had lots and lots and lots of sheep. You know why? Because in this chapter as we read about, the setting is this, is the Moabites had rebelled against the Israelites. And they didn't want to pay tribute to them anymore. Because what they had to pay... I don't know if it was every year or ever so often, but it said their tribute was a hundred thousand sheep. Now that's a big sheep business. That's all I can say. You know, it's a big time shepherd. They do not want to do that anymore. So they, they rebel. And, and so the thing is here is that the king of the king of, uh, Israel, the king of Judah and another king of Edom comes together. They make a plan to go out and to, to, uh, put down this rebellion. And, um, as they do so, um, things aren't going according to plan. Uh, they come together, they're going to march, they're going, things aren't going, to go, going according to plan. Um, let me ask you a question this morning as we think about this. Do you have anything this week that you really anticipated you are going to do, and it didn't go according to your plans? I mean, you know, anything. It could be something small, something big. Hopefully it's not as big as this. As we talk about in a minute, but uh, I mean, all of us probably relate to that. We make plans, we 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 plan, and we d- things, and then things happen to us, right? Things happen to us. So we come to this, and so If you have your Bibles in whatever format you look at them in, um, turn to Second Kings chapter three, verse nine, and we're going to look at a few verses here, nine through twenty, is going to be where we're going to focus our attention today in this story because I love this story. It teaches us so much about what it means to live the greater life that God wants us to live. Verse 9 says this, so the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And after a roundabout march of seven days, now why they marched around for seven days, it says a roundabout march, they were just marching around in the desert, they're out in a desert, it says uh, 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 for seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. Now that's a big deal, Right? I mean, these guys are getting ready to fight a battle and they have no water, not only water for themselves or any water for the the animals. And so what happens is in verse 10, what exclaims the king of Israel? Has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? It's funny. It really is funny to me how often God gets blamed for everything. Right? You know, this is not working out the way I thought it was going to work out. So it must be God's fault because he's the one that told me to do this. The problem is, and if we will read scripture carefully, very carefully here, the reality is that these kings had not followed. God's had not been close to God for a long time. They weren't following God's plan. They were following their plan. But, you know, when it didn't go well, they, you know, they, they, they blamed God. They blame God. Verse 11. But Jehoshaphat, there's that really cool name, asked, is there, and this is the king of Judah, is there no prophet of the Lord here from whom we may inquire of the Lord? In that day, what was very common was that they had prophets. There was many prophets you'd heard of in Scripture. And the prophets, when they needed, uh, needed direction in life, the kings would go to prophets. And the prophets would prophesy and say, yeah, this is, if you do this, this will happen. Or if you do this, this won't happen. And sometimes they liked what they said, sometimes they didn't like what they said. But here we are, Jehoshaphat asked the question, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may acquire of the Lord? And then an officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, the guy we met four chapters ago in the 1 uh, Kings, son of Shaphat is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Okay, this is his reputation right now. He is not a, known as the prophet, but he is a guy close to God because he was the guy that poured water on the hands of the real guy who was the rock star prophet, Elijah. So Jehoshaphat uh, said, the word of the Lord is with him. Now how do we know this? He must have had a reputation because of some things that had gone on, and we'll learn that in just a minute here, some things that had gone on in chapter 1 and 2, but uh, of 2 of Kings. And so he, the, Lord, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now let me say this, Elisha, Elisha was, a new, was in kind of a new position as a prophet, Yes, he had been following around Elijah for a number of number of we don't know years. Uh, It kind of seems like there's a period of time there, and during this time, though, we read in chapter one and two of of Second Kings a couple of things he had done to show that God was with him. In chapter one, when Elijah had gone up and uh, not died, but gone up into this chariot, been brought up in a chariot of fire, and he had left his cloak was behind. Elisha picks up the cloak, and the first thing he does, which shows God's power in his power in his life. It's what does he do with the cloak? Anybody knows the scripture passage. He strikes the water of the Jordan River with it, and what happens? Cool thing happens. The water parts, and he walks across, and he goes on, and some other prophets see him, and they go like, God is with that guy. I mean, not everybody can do the water trick, you know? God is with that guy, and we see that, and then And then something else happens, Uh, we don't know exactly the timing of it, but he's in another place, and and the water is not good, and it's near a town, or it's in a town called Jericho. And he's in this town called Jericho, the water's bad, and, and they're talking about how it causes all these problems, there's no place that's, that's clean water, and so he goes through this, and you can read this in chapter 2 of Second Kings, um, it's, it's a story, a little story about how he tells them to do this thing, bring some salt and put it into the water, which kind of sounds kind of weird, why do you put salt in water to make it pure? But he did, and, and the water becomes pure, and it says in scripture that even to the, he said it was pure from then on. Now let me tell you, tell you how God's power is in regard to this. When we were in Israel just a few weeks ago, one of the places we went was Jericho. And as we went there, this, that we popped, we'll pop up this next picture. This is a picture of, a, of, of a now it's this, they made this place where this water flows out. And this was the place, the stream, that Elisha 3,000 years ago put the water, uh, put the, he healed the water, they said, and it became pure. Guess what? That's the only pure source of water in Jericho to this day. Okay? When when the Bible says it, it's true. And and he he did that. So Elisha did that as well, you know? Now, some other, you know, there's some other things in the Bible that sometimes you read and you go like, what? Uh, There was one right after that as well, another story, and you can read this. And some of you read, I'll tell you these stories so that you'll read the Bible because, you know, some of you think the Bible is boring and you're cool. Maybe the Bible's cool and you're boring is the problem, you know, and the reality is so, the, the deal is this, um, right after this, there's this really kind of strange story and it says where Elisha is walking down a road or going toward a town and these bunch of kids, I don't know how old they were, teenagers maybe, middle schoolers probably, and they, uh, and they were, no, I don't think so probably, but anyway, they're going down the road and they started calling names and he called him Baldy, you know, I mean, can you think anything worse than to be called as Baldy? You know, I, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, that's pretty bad. They're making fun of the guy. But what, what he does at this point is he kind of curses them. And two bears come out of the woods. This is in the Bible. Believe me, you can read it. The two bears come out of the woods, attack the boys, and kill them. You're going like, boy, that is extreme in the Bible. Now, don't ask me to explain all that whole theology of that, you know. But it's just what happens. You're going like, really? Yeah, read the Bible. It's in there. The Bible's got all kinds of cool stories like this, especially in this area of the Scripture. It's, it's incredible. And if you don't, haven't read about Elisha before, read First and Second Kings and, and learn about him. Anyway, he does all these things. So he's kind of like these things that happened prior to this instance here where the three kings come to him. That's the only things we know about Elisha up to this point. And, and, and so they come to him. And the kings had probably tried everything else because, once again, remember, they had not really been following God at all up to this point. The king, the king of Israel, who was the son of Ahab, was not even close to God. Jehoshaphat had a fear of God, but he really hadn't been following God. And he didn't know that any of God's guys were hanging around there. And the other king of Ammon, he we don't know much about him at all. But obviously none have been following God. So what do you usually do when you're trying to, you know, what they were doing is they had this water problem. They probably tried to solve it all themselves, come up with all kinds of solutions, brainstormed. And what they ended up doing? <laughs> they, finally, they finally decided, well, you know, nothing else is working. Let's try God. We do that all the time. Well, you know what, and I don't know what else to do, so let's pray. You know, if you can't do anything, you know, that's kind of our attitude sometimes. We try to come up with our own solutions. And the thing is, is sometimes when this happens, a need in your life passes, uh, brings you to a place where you have to, re- you reach out to God. And I want to tell you that I think one of the teachings, one of the main things about this story today is this. This is the, next, this is the first big point. Your greatest need becomes a blessing when it drives you to depend upon God. If you're going through a, a really crummy time right now or have gone through a crummy time or, or whatever, don't always, we always think of it as a bad thing. That's just our mindset. It's bad, bad, bad things going on in our life. And it can be a bad thing, but God can turn it for good if he does something in our life. If he drives us to God, to follow him, even the bad things, the greatest need becomes a blessing when it drives you to depend upon God. See, so often we think that, you know, it's kind of like this quote uh, from one author who says this, God doesn't want me to use him to meet my needs. That's not what he wants to do. He wants to use my needs to bring me to him. It's a big difference. And so often we just want God to kind of to do stuff for us. So when the king of Israel came to Elisha, his needs were prompting him to look for a solution. But so Elisha pointed him towards God, who ultimately would be the only solution that they could have for this water problem they had. Now, as we read the next couple of verses here, I want to just point out something in these verses. Elisha, once again, what was he? He was not an experienced prophet. He was kind of a new guy on the block. But we will see an attitude in his life that he had, he had learned from his, his mentor, Elijah. Uh, he, this attitude. Um, kind of like looking at these guys, these kings, and going like, Well, guys, you, you want God in your life now after all this? And he learned it from Elijah because you remember Elijah, if you don't remember this, go and read this too. This is a little bit earlier in scripture. Really cool story of Elijah. That's why he's a rock star. Uh, and he, he was on Mount Carmel and, and he was going with it, having this, this, this throwdown with some guys who were the prophets of Baal. And, and they were some, all these people and they were they were the prophets that, that were following Ahab and Jezebel and kind of like they were the ones that, for them. And, 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 and Eli, Elijah, the prophet, uh, he gets there and he kind of like Gives them a hard time. He starts kind of like dissing their God, which in a sense was dissing the king and telling him, you know, your king's not, he, he's going like, you know, well, you know, God's not coming down and calling fire upon your pile of rocks and, and, and wood. Uh, he must be on a vacation. He must be asleep. Uh, and then he really says, the re- he, he could be at the, in the bathroom. That's what it says in scripture. If you don't believe me, read it. I mean, he's kind of like, that's kind of an attitude, Right? And these are guys that could kill. Well, Elisha comes to these three kings, three kings. In that day, we don't live in this kind of society, but three guys who every one of them had the power of life and death over him. Keep that in mind. And so, how does he respond to them when they say, hey, we have this water problem? We want you to come up with some kind of plan. Verse 13 Elisha said to the king of Israel, Why do you want me? Why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mama. That's what he said. He said, you know, I don't want anything to do with you. guys. do not want anything to do with me, so I don't want anything to do with you. And, and, then, and then the king of Israel says, no, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Once again, he blames God. And then Elisha responds, verse 14, great. As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I, whom I serve, now what is he saying? Well, you guys don't serve him. I serve him, okay? You guys say it's God's fault, but you don't serve God, so why would he listen to you at all anyway? He said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, once again, Jehoshaphat in this scripture, you can read the, the totality of scripture here, Jehoshaphat still had a fear of God, this didn't follow him very well, okay? If I didn't have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you, and let me add, at all. Hey, you know, I mean, this is a little attitude here. He's not afraid of these guys. See, Jehovah, Jehoshaphat wasn't doing what he was supposed to, but he did fear God, and so at least that caused Eli, Elisha to, to respect him that much. The reality is this. So often these guys were looking what? They were, not looking, they were looking for a, a shortcut, a solution, solution to their problem. But God is not your shortcut. God is your only solution to the problems that, that only God can solve in life. And, and I love, and I like this uh, Stephen Furtick in his book Greater says it this way says that if you're using God just to get the greater things he can bring that's not faith it's idolatry it's where we're trying to seek you know we think that greater is just having more stuff and if we go to God you know and so we start worshiping the things that God can do for us that's simply idolatry. See, great needs are often what drive us to God, but there are certain parts of things that we must do in our life to play our part in seeing God's miracles in our life and God work in our life. Now, so he says those things, and then the next verse, verse 15, is the strangest thing, if we don't know what's going on here in Scripture, the strangest thing he says, okay, okay, guys, I hear what you're saying, he says, I respect Jehoshaphat, so I'm going to do something about it, and the next verse is this, he says, so now, guys, bring me a harpist. I need some mood music. I mean, it's kind of what the deal is, right? Bring me a harpist, you know? I need, some, and you're going like, what? Uh, when I was in Israel, we went to a, Messia- a Messianic Jewish congregation, show the next slide, and, and it was this guy, this was kind of what the heart. and this guy, this this picture is really kind of stretched, so this guy really was really tall and skinny, and not, not as short and weird looking here, but anyway, uh, that's kind of the harp they're talking about. Not this big, giant thing we think of nowadays. Probably a harp like that you carry around, you know, in your harp case, like your guitar case, and you know, do whatever. So in that day, it was really normal for prophets and people to worship and use music, you know. And they use music because something about music touches the heart, not only the head but the heart. Have I- you ever thought about it this way? You ever watched a movie without the music in the background? Probably not. Take away the music. I mean, st- certain scenes in a, in a movie, if you didn't have the music in the background, they'd be kind of like lame. Really, I mean, you know, like Joss. <laughs> or the sound effects, you know. If it wasn't... Doo-doo, doo-doo, you know, and that the whole thing, and, it, and it, it's getting closer and closer. It's like scary. And they play the music, and they play back, or a love scene, and they play love songs, you know. And, you know, and they play this, this music. Music has a way of connecting with the heart. Now, the idea here that the reason they did this is not because if you had music, you know, that it, God draws closer. But it makes your heart more attentive to the heart of God. That's what that's the idea was in here. And that's why we, you know, we use it as well. So, the thing is, it's kind of the picture is this. These three kings come to, uh, to Elisha. And they want a solution to their water problem. And he says, okay, bring a harp. And they start playing harp music. I don't know what the song was. You know? And and, and they're kind of expecting, you know, some kind of thing about sending rain. And you just keep in your mind that there's music playing. And then this is what, And while the music's playing, this is what Elisha says. Then it happened, when the musician played, that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said... Thus saith the Lord. And he probably paused for dramatic effect. Make, and and, and kids cried out too. Um, Make this valley full of ditches. And they go like, what? That's not our deal. We We want water, not ditches. We've been out wandering around in the desert for seven days with a bunch of smelly animals. We have no water. We're tired. We're worn out. What are we going to do? And he says, what you need to do is you need to dig. Not a ditch, but ditches, plural. Lots of them. See, what they were looking for is is a magic trick from God. But faith is not a lottery ticket. Faith is a work order. Faith is something you do. And so often we simply think it's something we think about and then it happens. But no, that's not what faith is. Transformation, and we see this throughout Scripture, happens through participation in the purpose of God. The three kings came looking for a miracle, but Elisha gave them a set of instructions. And the question he was asking them is, are you willing to to play your part in the greater calling God has for your life? Are you willing to do the small thing so that God can do the thing that only he can do? And then in verse 17, he kind of says, he kind of concludes this part of the passage. He says, for this is what the Lord says, Elisha says, you will see neither wind nor rain. Yet this valley will be filled with water and you, your cattle and your other animals will drink. And then he adds this in verse 18, this is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, yeah, he will also deliver Moab into your hands, by the way. Now, what's the point he's making? The point is this. Only God can send the water, but sometimes he wants you to dig a ditch. Only God can send the water, but sometimes he wants you to dig a ditch. Let me ask you, do you think God really needed these troops to dig ditches? I mean, what kind of God, what kind of God do you believe in? I mean, my God that I believe in, I think the God of Scripture is a God who could have simply said like that, and it would have been a, not a ditch, it would have been like a, a lake, filled with water instantaneously. That's the kind of God he is. So why did he ask him to dig ditches first? What he's saying, and we see this in scripture time and time again, he says, show me your faith and I'll show you my faithfulness. Many times God wants us to participate in his miracles. Uh, for instance, Jesus, when he healed people, did he always just, do, just, just heal them instantaneously or to get them to do something first sometimes? Almost every time. I started looking at this. For instance, there was this guy who was a paralytic in Scripture. It means his hand was all, all gnarled and, and, and like this. And what does he say to the guy before he heals, or as he heals him? He says, he says to the guy, he says, stretch out your hand. I mean, that was hard to do for a guy whose hand was all like this. He said, have enough faith to, to make the effort to stretch out your hand, and then you'll be healed. Another guy who was, who was brought by his friends, Jesus, and he was on a mat, and he wanted to, uh, to walk, and he couldn't walk. And what did Jesus say to him? Did he say, you're healed? No, he said, take, get up, take your mat, and walk. He said, have enough faith, take the first step, dig the ditch of believing that I can do that part, that you to do your small part so I can do my greater part in your life. Another guy came to him that was blind And Jesus takes some mud and he rubs it and he puts it on the guy's eyes. And what does he do? He tells him, go and wash in the pool, the pool of Siloam. And he says, when you go there and do that, he said, you will be healed. He had to take a step of faith to believe that that would happen. He had to do something small so that God could do something greater in his life. It it, it says this in James chapter 2, verse 26. It says, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. What kind of ditches are you digging in your life? Uh, let me ask a question. I'm just going to kind of hit a lot of people here this morning. I'll make everybody mad at the same time. Um, and I don't care. Um, how many of you parents who have kids, young kids, older kids too, how many of you would say that you want your kids to love and serve God? Love and serve God. Is that your, how many of you would say that's your greatest priority? So, what kind of ditches do you need to dig to make sure that happens? Well, let me tell you something, a ditch you need to dig. You need to make sure, if you don't want them to love God and serve God, don't take them to church at least a majority of weekends, which prove to them that God must not be a priority in their lives. Or, don't speak words of encouragement and affirmation so that they know that they are in Christ and what that means. Or don't correct them because you are more interested in being their friend than in seeing them live life the way they need to live life. Because if you don't do those things, don't expect God to send the water until you dig some ditches. You have to, do, you have to make those things a priority. You have to dig the ditches. If you want God to bless your life by blessing your kids and making sure they love and serve God, you need to dig the ditches you need to do You want, you want God to bless you with more stuff in life? I mean, I'm saying that's not that is priority because stuff I don't think is a real big priority with God, truthfully. But so often we say, God, you know, bless me with my finances. And So, so what did you, did, did, ditch, ditches, I can't talk, ditches do you need to dig there? Do you have a b- 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 budget? I mean, that's a, if you don't do that, you don't have a manage, you're not managing the money that you already have, uh, there's a real problem because the Bible talks about being stewards. That means managers of our resources. Do you tithe? Oh, I can't afford to tithe. Well, you know, that's that's digging a ditch. That's in the sense saying, God, I will trust you with the 10% because I believe that you can do more with the 90% than I could with the 100% because I'm not as smart as you are. I, had this, I remember one time a few years ago, this guy came to me. That was hilarious, but I, I still remember this. He came to me, and he said, he's a young guy, He's probably in his mid-20s. That's really young to me, okay? Mid-20s is really young. Uh, and he came to me, and he said, Pastor, he said, I've been praying that God would send me a wife. And I'm going like, okay, tell me, what, you, what have you been doing? And basically, his life was living in a room, playing Xbox, and doing nothing else except that. And going, you know, had a job. I said, okay. I didn't use this terminology, but I thought about it in terms, terms of this. I'm going like, okay, if you want God to send you a wife, if, if that is, uh, you know, I believe something God would, could do if you pray about it. I said, do this. Sell your Xbox. Dig a ditch. Go to the gym. You know, most women would rather have a guy that looks like at least somewhat care about themselves. And iron your shirt. <laughs> he looked at me like, "What?" I'm going like, you know, there's some things you got to do, dude. If you want to, you can't sit in this house and expect God just to plop one a, a woman down on your lap. <laughs> See, only God can send the water, but sometimes He wants you to dig a ditch. Okay. Last point. Real faith. And I think this ties, ties things together. Real faith believes big, but is willing to start small. So often in life, when we talk about this greater thing, we, th- we think about the end result. And the end result is, God's oh, going to do this in my life, and it's going to be perfect. And, you know, let me tell you, there's a long way between what God's greater is and where you are now, and where I am now. It's a process. Life is a process of becoming more and more uh, walking more and more in the way that God would want you to. Real faith believes big and is willing to start small. The the thing is this, most of us probably can believe fairly big, but I'll tell you sometimes really we don't think big enough, and I know that's my problem sometimes because the problem is this, let let me just say it this way, if the size of your dream isn't intimidating to you, it's probably insulting to God. The size of your dream is not intimidating to you, it's probably insulting to God. If you've been praying about something and God is revealing something He wants to do in your life greater, it's probably, if the size of that dream is not bigger than you, intimidating to you, it's probably insulting to God because God wants you to believe that He can do more than you can possibly even imagine. It's what it says in Scripture. But the problem is many people, you know, they don't think big enough, but even more so, they don't want to start small enough. They don't want to dig a ditch See, faith is making preparation for something that you can't perceive. Read Hebrews chapter 11. It talks about what faith is. It's kind of like in the story we just read. You know, we can only assume, let, let me just this, this an assumption, but we can only assume that everyone in that valley, all those soldiers in that valley had dug all night long. Really? Yeah, they were soldiers. They've been told, dig ditches. So what do soldiers do if they're good soldiers? They dig ditches. Now, probably, this is a long time ago, they probably didn't have, you know, caterpillar machinery. And they probably, no, no, they didn't. And they probably didn't even have really decent shovels. They probably had sticks and hands and things like that. So they were digging ditches to whatever way. And so obviously, if they dug all night long, they hadn't probably made a lot of progress, but they had started digging the ditches. And they probably hadn't finished the irrigation system. But you know what it says? Verse 20, the next morning about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was. Ta-da! Water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. Did God wait for them to complete everything? No, he said, I want you to begin the process. Take a small step, begin the process, and do what I ask you to do. Dig a ditch. It's going to be a little ditch, but you begin the process. And then what I'm going to do is I am going to I'm going to do what, I, what only I can do. If you dig the ditches, God will bring the rain. That's what he's saying. That's the lesson here. That's the sense of what God wants us to do. So, as we wrap this up and close, let me ask you a couple of questions. What ditches is God calling you to dig? What ditches is God calling you to dig? That's the first question. And secondly, and together with this, are you available are you willing to go Dig. What are the things in your life that God has told you about but you just haven't started because the reality is, is it's not like he's waiting for you to be able because guess what? You are able to do what he calls you to do. But it's the first step toward what he wants to do is a greater life. He's waiting for you to have the faith to get started. And what God is telling us is that we need to believe big but we need to start small. And how we do that we put our faith in action by digging some ditches. So what are the ditches in your life that God wants you to, to dig? I gave you a few examples today, but you can think of a lot more. In regard to your relationships, in regard to your, your family, in regard to your jobs, in regard to, you just go through the whole list of everything in your life. What are the small things that God says, do this first so I can do what I, only I can do? Are you thinking big, God-sized things, but are you starting small and being willing to do that? Let's pray. God, we turn to you this morning, and we would ask that you would allow us, in a, in a real sense, to realize that, God, your, your thoughts are bigger than our thoughts. Your plans for our life are greater than our plans. And it may not even be what we think of as greatness, God. Maybe it's, maybe it's something that actually, that the world would say is, is, is lesser, but God, we're not, we're not to, to judge and rule things by the world's standards. We're to, we're to uh, go after things that are according to your plans, God, for our lives. All of us in our lives, God, probably have ditches we need to dig. The small things we need to start, we need to start something. If, if it was nothing more than getting a kid's shovel out and digging a little bit, bit of dirt as a, as a visual, that needs to be the first start. Maybe it's something really small. Maybe it's this week saying, hey... God, I I just want to spend more time with you this week, so I'll know what it is. I mean, I'm going to spend 15 minutes with you each day this week, God, just looking at your word, listening to what it says, and asking the question, what does this mean for me? Maybe that's a start for us in digging the ditches you want us to dig. God, I pray that you would just guide us this week, that we would just decide more than anything, that we want to live the greater life that you want for us, God. And it's not judged, and it's not, like I said, it's not about, about the world standards of greatness, and that has nothing to do with this. This has to do with us being in tune with you, God, and allowing you to work through us. Because God, you know, if all, if, all it means is that, you know, uh, we just need to be motivated to do more. That just sounds like really kind of a motivational speech, but that's not what this is about, God. This is about of us being motivated enough to take the first step in faith, to believe that you can do stuff in us, God, that we can't even imagine. That you can change hearts and minds and lives for eternity. And you, God, you want to use us as your instruments for that. Thank you, God, so much. Thank you so much. For the stories Throughout the scripture, but especially the stories of Elisha, which sometimes we look at and we're going like, oh man, couldn't do that. Well, we're not called to do that. We're called to do what we're called to do. And God, Elisha was called to do what he was called to do. And because he took the first step of faith and followed you, God, and because he listened and was not afraid of people around him, what they thought, God, he was, be able, to, he was able to be used by you in powerful ways. So God, just guide us now. Help us to follow you in our lives in all that we do and say. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.